Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to be talking about political strife in Italy, in France and in the UK. Who's in the most trouble and who is best placed to get out of it? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. I'm joined by Chris Bickerton, who is, among other things, an expert on both Italian and French politics. And it's a pleasure to have back Lucia Rubinelli, an expert on European political thought, but also on the politics of her native Italy. So Lucia, we're about a year on from the elections that eventually resulted in the League Five Star government. And it's been this kind of amazing experiment in a new kind of politics, because there they are together in this government. The Five Star, when it started, were the more popular party in polling and voting terms. The League are I mean, they're not conventional, right? But they are a recognisable type of anti-immigrant, for want of a better word, populist party. Not exactly right-wing, but because some of the issues cut across left and right. But we know the type, I think, in European politics. And then Five Star doesn't really have a type. Much harder to pin down. And what we have seen, I think, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, over the year is the league's stock has gone up. And Five Star are really in trouble. And in recent elections, they've been close to being wiped out. And the balance has really shifted. I mean, we talked about this a bit before, but it's, if anything, it's, it's accelerated. Yeah, so since the last time we spoke, um, three things happened. The first one is, well, the first two are two regional elections, one in Abruzzo, which is a very small region in central Italy, and one in Sardinia, the island. In both regions, the Five Star did relatively well at the national elections, but they did very, very, very badly in the, I mean, the regional elections. Collapsed. Exactly, collapsed. So they, they were the third party after the centre-right coalition, because that's also interesting. The League ran with Berlusconi. So after them, and after the PD, which was proclaimed to be dead, right? But and they, just to remind people, so the PD is the old, well, the still centre-left party. It's the centre-left. The party of Renzi and... Exactly. The other interesting thing is that the PD now, well, now it has a new leader, and we can talk about him later maybe, but at the time of these regional elections, it was still in the transition phase. So there was no formal... So the leaderless leader. PD beat Five exactly. Star. Not, good, not a good look. Not, not a good look, not at all. And then the third new piece of information is that um, recent polls from last week, the League has doubled its shares of votes, so from 17% when in last a year ago to 33, 34% now. The Five Star passed from being 32, I think, at the general elections to now being, yeah, just above 20%. And the PD passed from 19 to 21. So, so, so Five Star are... I mean, these are small numbers, but they're coming third now. They are coming third, exactly. Officially coming third. And you know, lots of things go into this, but looking at it as someone who doesn't have any inside knowledge, one possible explanation is, it sort of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, you know where you are with the league. And as we move towards European elections and so on, as a campaigning party, 
they have a pretty clear message, and it's increasingly an anti-immigrant message, right? Insofar as it, there were sort of complicated things going on, it's getting simpler and simpler. Five Star, I think, is getting more and more complicated to say what it is they stand for. Is that is that right? I think the reasons for the performance of the Five Star movement, which I think are sort of pretty mixed, are not exactly the same as the the league's success. I think these are kind of two separate things. About the Five Star movement. We should, probably shouldn't forget that this is partly about expectations. You know, the Five Star Movement did so spectacularly well so quickly. By all accounts, it was the most successful political party in Europe since 1945. I think that what we're seeing is... What a, goes up comes down kind of thing. And it doesn't go down. I mean, in the recent kind of more localised votes are pretty worrying, I think, for the Five Star. But if you look at the European forthcoming European parliamentary elections, the Five Star's polling it more or less what it got in 2014... So there's a sense in which, you know, it's not consolidated its success at the last national election. That's absolutely true. And in this battle with the league, it's been losing. But it's still, I mean, it's, you know, it's a central political player in a field which it simply didn't inhabit, you know, a decade ago. The success of the league, though, I think is yes. I mean, the Faisal movement is a new political entity. It's difficult to classify. It has its own internal struggles between its activists and its more moderate wing. What's the point of it if it's basically a governing party? Whereas it had its origins in being this, you know, very virulent anti-establishment movement. The league is a is a political party, a traditional political party that's managed to expand itself on the national scale, and I think benefits massively from some of the structural constraints of Italian politics. If you take economics off the table, which I think in the Italian case is essentially what the politicians have had to do, what you've got left is culture, immigration, integration, uh, and the League are capitalising on that massively. I think you raised a couple of interesting points, but and one is the difference between the Five Star as a non-traditional party and the League as a traditional party. And I think that besides, obviously, the type of political message it is channelling, I think the interesting point is that the League is very well rooted in the territory. So there is a history long, I guess it's more than 20 years that they have been ruling the Northeast. And they've been doing that relatively successfully in the sense that these are prosperous regions. Lombardy, so the region of Milan is very wealthy, same with Venice. So they have a power base, basically. They, they are a, they are expanding out from a secure exactly, base and a long power. established one, yeah. one where they have a good track record, if you want. Uh, while the five star have basically no experience in local government, the only experiences of local government they have is Rome, which is arguably quite tough, tough. A tough place to govern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for any for any political party, really. Go, going back a long way. Yeah, uh, Turin has been very controversial for. A, a long series of reasons and a, a series of smaller cities in, the, in central Italy where the, the Five Star didn't do very well. So there is this lack of experience with local government. So there are lots of sort of little vignettes of what make these parties so different and the ways they're reacting differently to the challenge of being in government. So one that's just come out in the last couple of days. These are populist parties and one feature that they had in common, it's kind of weird, is that they both flirted with the anti-vaccination movement. Now, I read this morning that the League's minister, a leading politician in the North, who's a leading anti-vaxxer, has just come down with chickenpox. But the League are sticking to their anti-vax guns, if you can have anti-vax guns. 
Whereas Five Star have flipped on this as well, the pressure of being in government and including having the education portfolio means that, you know, it's a classic example of political responsibility that Five Star have noticed it's really not good for anti-vaccinated kids to go to school because there is a surge of cases, both in France and in Italy, of measles. And so Five Star are doing the responsible thing. I mean, in the long run, maybe it's better to be the responsible party on this issue. But at the moment, it looks like you know, tested on this issue, they've gone different ways. Well, yes. And what's interesting is that they've gone different ways on the only issue that would have actually favoured the five star in terms of fulfilling electoral promises. So the five star flipped on a promise and made and the league stuck to the initial promise. Um, the promise being you don't have to be vaccinated to go to school. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But then the five star also flipped on a series of other very important promises. One example I think is um, quite telling is that since its origins in the early 2000s, one of its pillars was to say, if you are investigated by the judiciary, you should not be in office, any type of public office. And recently, a judge asked to investigate Salvini for kidnapping migrants because he wouldn't let the, the Italian boat with migrants get to one of the Italian ports. Obviously, in order to investigate a minister, you need an authorization from parliament, and the Five Star decided not to give the authorization against Salvini. So that's a big, big change, if you want. Tell us a bit more about the new leader of the PD, because this is also an interesting development that doesn't really have a parallel anywhere else. Who is this guy? Uh, he's the brother of someone. Uh, he's a few... I mean, lots of people are the brother of someone. <laughs> if you happen to, to follow the series about the Montalbano character... Which is a big deal in Italy, right? This it's a series. big deal, yeah. It's oh, the Inspector Morse. Is he in the Inspector Morse of Italy? Yeah, possibly. Like, it's, it's one of the most seen TV shows, I think. I mean, in terms of substance, he probably couldn't be more different from Inspector Morse. Yeah. The actor who plays Montalbano, his, his, I don't know if it's older or younger, but certainly his taller brother um, is now... <laughs> no, smaller brother. Younger but taller. Now, Montalbano, the actor, is smaller. It's much smaller, yeah. But yeah. the PG... Oh, sorry, OK. I'm, sorry. I just, I this is the kind of political analysis <laughs> you get on talking politics. <laughs> Anyway, uh, he's, uh, anyway, he's he's uh, like he's a uh, he's one removed from a really famous TV person. Yeah, I mean, he's and is that part of his appeal? Yeah, and um, I mean that's just anecdotal information. But um, in the city where Montalbano is filmed, he won the primaries with ninety eight percent of the votes. The brother, Montalbano's brother, yeah, cleaned yeah, yeah. up. <laughs> well, wow. I mean, he presents the PD with a bit of a dilemma, though. As far as I can tell, he represents. Certainly a sort of an attempt to wrestle the Pithy away from its legacy of Renzi. So it's a kind of a post-Renzi sort of figure, but also much more to the left, I think, putting the party more to the left. Now, the response, I think, has been that certainly many people think it's good to have a new figure. But there's people are more sort of uncertain, I think, about whether it's good to pull it to the left or whether it's not a good idea. Yeah, and the party is split. I mean, you're right. He got elected on a programme that would bring the PD much closer to other smaller parties on the left. And these smaller parties on the left are parties that are made up of people who used to be in the PD, but then they left because of Renzi. So he's definitely trying to move left. Then the Renzi faction in the party is still very powerful. So obviously... So, so in a way, this, again, that is a completely recognisable story from lots of places. It's true of the British Labour Party. It's true of the Democratic Party in the United States, that, that the classic split that you see now in sort of centre-left parties between the establishment, including people who had power in the 90s and the 2000s, or more recently than that, and the new wing who want to move it closer to a 
Corbynite or Mélenchon or Bernie Sanders kind of position. It sounds like a version of that, just with the added Montalbano <laughs> twist. <laughs> Maybe that's the secret. <laughs> that's what you need. You need the the Bernie figure to actually be. Which is also a, a mistake to write off the five star movement. I mean, if the PID is doing a bit better than maybe it has been in the past, it still faces these internal problems, which are really big. It may be that certainly something that the new PID leadership might want to do is actually to forge a closer alliance with the five star. Uh, Renzi was always absolutely adamantly opposed to it, and the five star was also viscerally opposed to doing you know sort of deals with Renzi. These were long standing sort of sparring partners. I think with uh, with Zingaretti uh, it would be a little bit different. Um, he has been, it might just be strategy, but he has been repeatedly saying that he will not form any alliance with the five star, that what he wants is to bring together the left and do a serious centre-left coalition, but he doesn't want to deal with the five-star. So I want to pick up on two more aspects of Italian politics, the second of which will lead us to France, then we'll get from France eventually back to the UK. Something else that's happening this week is Xi Jinping is on a European tour, and he's coming to Italy. And Italy is at the forefront of a bigger, much bigger controversy about the extent of Chinese investment and influence on the southern fringes, or not even fringes, but in southern Europe. I mean, we've, we've known for a long time there's been very serious Chinese investment and I think growing influence in Greece, also in Portugal. And now it's clear that the Italian government is willing quite openly to say that it welcomes this kind of realignment that Italy is open for business on a really massive scale, kind of belt and road business with the Chinese, which is potentially a big split in European politics. And it's so complicated because there's also that added complication. You know, these conventional anti-immigrant parties, they often have their favourite strongman. But for the the ones that look east to Eastern Europe, it's tended to be Putin. And certainly the League has been associated with having a kind of vague or explicit pro-Putin bias. So that takes you sort of from Northern Italy through Hungary. China in some ways was more associated with Five Star, I think. And yet, again, because Salvini's making the running on everything, Salvini is the one who seems to be taking a lead on this. Yeah, so the, the person who has actually started talking to China was the former prime minister. So he was a PD man. But then since he left office was Di Maio, so the leader of the Five Star. And Salvini has been ambiguous about China. So on the one hand, he's saying, well, accepting Chinese investment would give us the room to do what we want to do and also would give us an opportunity to do what the European Union doesn't want us to do. So there is clearly an anti-European sentiment that justifies this move towards China. At the same time, though, he has also been quite critical. So he's a, And he's critical in terms of security. So he says, well, this could be a challenge to our national security. So we need to think about it. Even though, again, that's typical of Salvini, one of his right-hand men is the person behind the deal. So it's not clear what game he's playing, but he's definitely interested in Putin. Again, as you said, long, long-standing connection, and with Trump. Apparently, some well, of that's his... A, that's a hard threesome to play. <laughs> exactly. That, that's... <laughs> so, but the... Well, if he pulls that one off, then he's well, a genius. <laughs> yes. It's hard to square keeping those American connections and taking Chinese money. It's just not... That's not the way it goes. No, and exactly. So we'll see what happens in the next few days. I mean, there has been some sort of pushback on that, I think, uh, on the US side. I'm surprised it hasn't happened sooner, to be honest. I mean, it has been happening across other kind of countries in Southern Europe, and there's a certain pattern there. And I think the pattern is clear, which is that 
insofar as you are stuck within a currency union that is not also a transfer union. And if you're on the sort of receiving end, if you like, of the harder side of the, the eurozone, so you're struggling economically, you're not the export economy that's booming, you're the in Italy's case, uh, an export economy that's really struggling, or in other cases, systematic kind of importing economies. Um, if you're on the sort of hard side of the Eurozone, and it's not a transfer union, you need some sources of, of investment in order to be able to do the kinds of things which the budgetary restrictions of Eurozone membership don't allow you to do. Were the Euro to develop a systematic mechanism for redistributing cash, I think the need for outside funds would uh, would disappear. But I think in the Italian case, it seems an obvious way of sort of making up some sort of shortfall without breaking budgetary rules. And it does potentially exacerbate north-south divides because it's clear one of the reasons the Chinese are interested in southern Europe, not just because, in a way, there's an easier way in for them, is that okay, it's the Belt and Road Initiative. But a lot of it is actually about shipping. This is about investing in ports and infrastructure. This is about the kind of transportation links that work well around the Mediterranean. And Northern Europe is geographically differently placed. You know, in a way, Northern Europe, the question is the gas pipeline from Russia. Southern Europe, there's this issue about the role of shipping and, and transportation. So the opportunity is there, but also there is the need from the side of receiving states. And that need, I think, is not contingent. It's not about who's in power in, in Rome. I mean, this is systematic, structural, cuts across a number of different EU member states. And until or unless the euro uh, develops... Uh, systematic forms of transfers, that need will still be there. So part of the thing we want to do today is towards the end get to a kind of comparison between Britain, France and Italy and the different kinds of political tensions, deep political tensions that are at work. To get from Italy to France, we can do it by talking about Italy's relationship with France. So this is another way in which the government is both united and split. So in a sense, they're united in that they're all really not thrilled with Macron but on different fronts. So the Five Star have really gone for it by being photographed with Gilets jaunes protesters. Di Maio, there's a famous photograph of him with yellow vest protesters. To talk about forming alliances, European alliances, with that front of European politics. With Salvini, it's around the immigration issue and migration and, and confrontations with France about who will take which boats, which you know, which people trying to uh, find a safe haven and who, who's going to be tougher with the French on that. And then there are other issues too. I think there's a train line being built from Lyon to Turin that the Five Star are really not happy about and the Italians don't want to pay for it. And so you've got two contests here. You've got the Italy-France contest and then you've got the two versions of it within the Italian government. So who's winning in this? Do you mean between Italy and France or, or between the two versions? Of- either. So I think between the two versions, it's the league again. And it's very evident in the case of this high-speed so, so train. So the, the, the yellow vest kind of alliance isn't working. The five-star yellow vest thing isn't, well, hasn't got any traction, apart from really annoying Macron. Yeah, exactly. It, it really annoyed Macron. And then it didn't seem to get much traction in Italy. And indeed, in the past few weeks, nothing was said about this potential list for the European yeah, election. That's a, the so there's, there's been talk that the Gilets jaunes would put up candidates. Yeah, and, and Di Maio and, wanted to run with that. Like, to so have that, would, that would be a big... So that was the original proposal, but then after the backlash from Macron, everything went silent. But I think where the tension is playing out now is really with this high-speed train, because the five-star doesn't want it, and they, they never wanted it because of its environmental impact in the Italian Alps. While the League obviously wants it, because the League is the party of the interest of the, nor- the wealthy North. 
And uh, it's a big infrastructure year. project. And it's a big infrastructure project. So we will need to see what happens. But for the time, it looks like they're just postponing the decision because they know that they cannot. It's an international treaty that decided about this train. So it looks like they cannot withdraw from it and that Salvini is going to have his way. Just they will announce it after the European elections, probably. I think that's a tough one for the Five Star Movement. It's been really a sort of a key part of its whole history, really, has yeah. been in opposition to that project. I mean, there is talk about Salvini wanting to manufacture and engineer a governmental crisis that would precipitate early elections, which he would then sweep up and be able to win. Um, and then he would govern with the Berlusconi faction. Yeah. But also being the dominant player in that um, and get rid of this alliance with the Five Star altogether. I don't know whether it would be around an issue like that. I think the Five Star would... You know, it's already struggling with maintaining its commitments and maintaining its sense of itself um, to concede on big, big issues like that. It may have to, I think, as you said, Lucia, but that would be a tough one. The thing with the Gilets Jaunes, the reason why I think it didn't work is it goes to the nature of the of the Gilets Jaunes movement. You can't really have a political alliance with a a very embryonic essentially non-organised, non-sort of institutionalised mass of different people who... A street movement. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, it's, it's still a, a street movement. It's not even, yeah, it's not even called it a protest movement. I mean, it's just... It's, it, it began as this insurrectionary phenomenon and has regularised itself into these, you know, weekly protests. The last one that we had last weekend was the 18th. I mean, this has been going on for a really long time now. This was particularly spectacular because it coincided with the end of what had been Macron's attempt to manage these problems by initiating this very curious grand débat national, this big national debate, which is basically him, basically him, and a few sort of eminent figures who serve as the guarantors to the debate in conversation with many, many people in these kind of sort of local venues across the country for hours and hours of discussion. That came to an end. And then you had this absolutely massive, dramatic, incredibly violent and destructive protest. Because you said, I think last time we talked about this on this podcast, I, I quote you, Macron's got his mojo back. But this weekend was tough for him. He was skiing while the Champs-Élysées was in flames, which felt a bit more like where we were maybe a couple of months ago. And the great conversation that he's been having, it doesn't seem to have, I mean, maybe it had an effect in that it kind of was a holding operation, but it hasn't delivered much, right? It's not, from what I've read, it doesn't seem like it's going to heal these wounds. It was a very bad look, I think. Um, The skiing thing. Well, not just the skiing. Macron was skiing. Um, His interior minister, Christophe Castaner, was basically in in a nightclub kissing some young woman, clearly having a good time, letting his hair down. Uh, You get this feeling of... We've done the conversation, now let's go clubbing or skiing. Reward ourselves. And the intense tension and difficulties of the last few months almost seemed as if the government was beginning to feel as if it had gotten over that period. And just as that happened, you then had this, you know, really dramatic protest on the Champs-Élysées, which threw up some images that were really kind of people, you know, were shocked by. And the response was... Partly the government saying, well, the police didn't do a good job and trying to sort of put the blame on the police chiefs. But people were sort of thinking, what was the government doing? You know, why did they not anticipate this? Did they just, you know, take their foot off the sort of pedal? So you started to get a discussion around 
the government's uh, attitude towards the violence. But then also there's a feeling now, which I think is definitely right, is that this is not about a few small groups who are very successful at trashing banks and setting a light to that iconic restaurant, uh, Le Fouquet, where, where Sarkozy celebrated his victory in 2007. It's not about that small-scale organised violence. There is something systematic taking place, which... I'm not sure these national conversations have really addressed because the people who attended those national conversations were overwhelmingly older, not the sort of people who are out you know, demonstrating, not really the core of the Gilets jaunes movement at all. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's a kind of irony here, which is, like many European countries, including this one, France has been through what feels like a huge amount of turmoil uh, during the Macron presidency, great kind of lurches of fortune, including just for him personally, you know, great sweeps in his ratings, in his the perception of him, is he up, is he down? It feels very volatile. You look at polling for, and we can't put too much weight on polling, but you look at polling for European elections. And it's remarkably unchanged from the first round of the presidential election that eventually led to Macron winning. It's a very divided electorate, but it's divided on grounds that were there a couple of years ago. Macron is polling at sort of 24%, the National Front or the new version of it, whatever it's called now, the Le Pen movement is just behind him. You've got Mélenchon snapping at their heels, you've got the old centre-right coalition snapping at their heels too and the, the, the mainstream social democrats so in italy there's talk of a revival because they've got this tall or short uh, <laughs> brother of someone but there's nothing moving right in france so some things look frozen yes it, it feels to me like this is a feature of contemporary politics and european politics it's simultaneously very volatile and very frozen if you can be volatile and frozen at the same time. So it's certainly volatile. I think, I wouldn't say frozen, I'd say it's, it's, it's systematically fragmented. So one of the features of that 2017 election, the presidential election, was the fragmentation. The relative equality between quite a large number of different political forces, certainly in the first round. Uh, and the failure of the traditional two main parties to then kind of pull the two sides together. They were squeezed out. That's right. But what Macron did was he then certainly pulled things up on the side of En Marche. And then when it came to the legislative elections, he absolutely cleaned up. So it's, in comparison to that, I suppose what's surprising about the European parliamentary election polls, what they're suggesting now, it may change. Uh, there's still some time before the vote, but it's not as if his party, En Marche, has consolidated the gains it made in the legislative elections. What he's done, essentially, is he's gone back. Certainly the polling suggests he's gone back to his core vote. And the core vote was always, you know, between 20 and 25%. No more than 25% of the electorate were really his core. Everything else were people who may have voted for him for lots of different reasons or voted for Amash in the legislative elections for different reasons, but they're not the core of his vote. 
now it seems that you've got Marine Le Pen has consolidated. I mean, she's had a fair amount of difficulty in lots of different ways. It's not been an easy time for her, but she's also got this core vote that's kind of around 20, 20, you know, 20 odd percent for her. The real difference is that I think whatever was the core vote for the Socialist Party has disappeared and they're now polling around 5-6% in these elections. If that's the result, that would consolidate or confirm, if you like, the the disappearance really in electoral terms of the, of the Socialist Party, whereas the others are sort of holding off. So you've got a kind of four-way split, if you like, in the vote in France. The volatility, I think, is just that the Gilets jaunes have introduced this new element, which is that Macron focused everything on himself the Gilets jaunes are this disorganised, spontaneous form of vi- very violent protest targeted at Macron. And if you see what people write on their, on their Gilets jaunes in the protests, a lot of it is about Macron resigning. You know, Macron démission is everywhere on people's vests. Um, and they also target, and this has become part of the discussion, what the French call les institutions. They target the, the emblems of the state. The Arc de Triomphe is the kind of real concentration at the top of the Champs-Élysées for a lot of the protests. Some of the ministries were trashed in the past. I mean, there's a lot of focus on public property, public uh, infrastructure. And I think it's because Macron is associated with the state and they target the state. So let's get back to, finally, to Britain, and we will touch on Brexit in a second. But so you've got these three Western European democracies that look like they're facing very, very different kinds of challenges. So what you have in the Italian case uniquely is the anti-establishment parties in power. They, they won two of them, different kinds. What you have in the French case is a president who, he had a conventional political career and then he created a new movement. He is in some sense a centrist, being confronted with this kind of radical street politics. So Paris, periodically is in flames. Rome is not in flames. London is not in flames. Paris is in flames. And then in Britain, you don't have either of those two things, but you have Brexit and you have complete parliamentary, essentially, breakdown. I mean, Britain is sort of ungovernable at the moment in a completely different way. You also have these just beginnings of these strange overlaps and parallels. So the one that I noticed literally today is just reading about the initial court case of the man who called Anna Subri, one of the new independent group MPs. He was filmed on TV essentially calling her a Nazi and he was facing a court case yesterday which was then disrupted by his friends in the gallery who were self-consciously presenting themselves as yellow vest protesters, attacking the institutions, the court in this case, and saying we don't recognise the authority of this court. And he was shouting you know, I get called a fascist all the time and those people are not you know, not being charged with anything. And there was a, just a slightly different mood and feel to this. And also in the description I read, a sort of sense of bemusement on the part of the authorities as to how to deal with this kind of thing. So you get Farage is on his march or not on his march. There are anti-establishment forces in British politics. And there's this fear that if Brexit went really wrong, whatever that means, it would open the door electorally to some of those kinds of movements actually winning lots of seats, maybe having to be taken seriously as possible coalition partners in a future government. So there, there are these kind of overlaps too. I think it's an incredible moment in, in European politics. So I had a conversation with Adam Tooze on this podcast a while back in which he was just incredulous when I suggested that the French political system was potentially in more trouble than the British political system because British political system had a kind of institutional complete crisis paralysis it was facing an issue it couldn't resolve 
But in France, the deep social tensions had now come to the fore in, in classic ways in the form of violence. And he just, he thought I'd gone mad. Like to him, it's obvious that British politics has failed, but French politics can right itself. And then you've got the Italian case. There's an article in The Guardian. We'll, we'll tweet the link of, to it by um, Roberto Saviano, the author of Gomorrah, saying like Italian politics is in a state of complete democratic emergency. You know, this is, you know, this is you know, all the sirens are clanging red because it's on the brink of collapsing into a kind of racist authoritarian state. So I'm going to ask you the sort of Adam II's question, uh, and you can be incredulous with each other or with me. Like, which of these is the dominant crisis for this period of European politics? The anti-establishment government in Italy, Paris in flames, Westminster just in kind of, not even in meltdown, just in kind of I don't know what the word is for what Westminster is at the moment, just mad. I, I mean, I disagree with Adam too. So I think what you say is, seems to me almost self-evident. I mean, the UK's crisis is a political crisis based on the difficulties in implementing a decision that was taken in a referendum that was a relatively close result and has created enormous amounts of pushback. It feeds into loads of social tensions, I think there's no doubt, but then all of politics does. And it had its own terrible emblematic moment of violence, the, the murder of Joe Cox. I mean, it's not like anywhere is immune from this. That's right, but, you know, all politics is connected to things going on within society and Brexit's not different from that. But it has a peculiarly institutional quality to it. You know, there's a logjam occurring within the parliamentary system and in the relations between the executive and the parliament. And these are tough negotiations and leaving the EU is evidently not an easy thing to do. And if you just take this week's, again, symbolic meltdown, which is speaker versus executive, there's no parallel for that anywhere else. It, it doesn't just have its roots, it has its precedent in 1604. It feels very distinctive to this case, I think. Yes, I mean, it's not to say that Brexit isn't important or the political crisis that it's generating isn't important, but it seems to me that what's going on in France is, on the one hand, you've had this amazing adaptability, I suppose, of the political system, of the party system, its capacity to to change, to allow the entrance of an entirely new party, new actor. You know, So in some ways it's shown itself to be very malleable, which I suppose has a stabilising element to it. But you've also had these tensions which have then broken out in the Gilets Jaunes protests. And there's self-evidently a class war element to this. The people taking part in the protests and the support for the protests expresses, I think, people's sense of deep alienation from the political institutions and their absence in French politics, absent from decisions. And uh, the attacking the institutions, I think, is a way of saying, look, we're here. And it's one of the features of this, because we've talked about this a lot. So something that came out in the, re the British Brexit referendum was this big educational divide, which turns out to be one of the big divisions in our politics, but it had been somehow buried. And it's still not, I think, quite come to the surface. It seems more raw in France that you say it's class war. But it, a lot of it is against the kind of stranglehold that the educated elite have on these institutions in France. That's true, but that was channeled for quite a long time through the National Front, through what's now the Rassemblement National by Marine Le Pen. Typically, the, the voter for, for Le Pen's party was quite young and relatively uneducated. So there was an outlet there, which I think was increasingly becoming accepted as part of political life. And what we discovered in the second round of the presidential election is that if you can forge an alliance between the young, I mean, I've talked about this a lot, the young and the uneducated, 
you can get about a third of the electorate. If you're Macron and you can form an alliance between the older voters, of whom there are more, and the educated, you win. So it was an outlet, but it was also a dead end. It certainly meant, I think, that then political life or representation was closed off to a whole bunch of people. And also a lot of issues were closed off. And then the sort of the, the sense of kind of arrogance associated with Macron, all of these things generated a kind of revolt. But I think what's going on in France is it's just it's people are talking about these kind of far left groups that are monopolizing the violence. I think there's also an acceptance that there's something else going on about the way French society is constituted and how it relates to its politics. And that seems to me, once the UK has left the European Union, um, however that is achieved, you can imagine that there are a lot of issues that will be addressed, but the specific political and constitutional crisis will have its after effects, but it will have been resolved in some way. In the French case, it's much more difficult because there is no particular issue here. What does Macron have to do? How can these things you know, suddenly disappear? So there's a longer term quality, I think, to what's going on in France, which for me echoes a lot more with what's going on in Italy, which is about a slower, longer term transformation uh, in a country rather than some of the more conjunctural aspects of the Brexit crisis. Yeah, I think the Italian case is substantially different from both, actually. So it's different from the Brexit case because I don't, I don't see an institutional crisis. There were moments of institutional tension a little less than a year ago when the government had to be formed and the president of the republic interfered quite heavily. But for the time being, it is from the institutional point of view, all running quite smoothly. Let's see what happens after the European elections. Let's see what happens once the new budget has to be passed in the fall. But for now, I don't think there's any institutional crisis. It's different from France because, because of two reasons. The first one is there's no opposition to what the government is doing. On the contrary, there is massive support for what the government is doing. And given the racist, anti-immigrant and violent tones that the government has been taking as of late, that's worrying. But it's a different type of concern, I think, from the one you get in France. And this leads me to the second difference, which is that I don't think in Italy the main divide is a class divide or an educated against non-educated divide. There is a divide um, between young and old, but I think the main divide is north and south. So it's really regional. Rather than and that's a always class been true. This has, yeah, and to some extent, it maps onto a class divide because obviously the north is much wealthier; it's on the par with wealthy Euro- European states, while the south is much below that. But I think that's the main divide. I th- the thing that makes me think—I mean, this, these kind of three cases. One, okay, things won't magically be solved once the UK leaves the European Union, but a lot of the logjam we're facing will simply disappear. New issues will come up, but they will be different. But what about the the crisis of confidence in parliamentary government in this country. I mean, I don't think that that's going to go away anytime soon. No, but it wasn't as if there was an amazing confidence in the parliament before. There's been a decade of, you know, certainly from the parliamentary expenses scandal onwards, a kind of systematic distrust of, of parliamentarians. And you don't think this is going to take it to a qualitatively different stage? I mean, it depends what happens. But I think if if the UK leaves, I mean, the crisis is inseparable from the act of leaving the European Union. In the case of Italy and France, you have to say these crises, if we call them crises, are inseparable from what? And is the thing that they're connected to transitory or is it more long term? In the French case, I think it seems less transitory. In the Italian case, I think also these are kind of, you know, society and its politics is changing partly because of the kind of constraints it finds itself in that are not going to disappear anytime soon. So I would reverse the kind of two's analysis, in fact, and say that Brexit is more sort of contingent and transitory. The others are more systematic and long term. So I want to finish by asking Lucia 
just to give us a, I'm not going to say an outside perspective on Brexit, but we've been talking a lot about Brexit and we can get to inside it. And another thing that's come up a few times, and I was asking some people about this yesterday, people who are not UK citizens, which is when you look at this from the outside, is this just humiliation, which is you know, a motive that's come up a lot, that what what's really going on here is the humiliation of the UK. The failure of its political institutions is not leading to burning shops and banks, and it's not leading to a kind of outpouring of institutionalised racist rhetoric, at least not yet. But it's just an inability to deliver on a project that has just revealed this kind of level of weakness or incompetence or whatever. And the people I was asking yesterday said, well, yeah, I mean, like, it's just self-evident to us that that's what this is. This is one person from Norway, one person from the United States. You know, it's just, and every country has its own, you know, people from America have their own crosses to bear as to how the rest of the world views them. Norway less so. Norway is probably most perfectly placed country at the moment for just having a good look. But how does it look to you? Do you think Britain has been humiliated? Well, possibly, but I don't think that's uh, that's that's what's interesting from the Italian perspective. On the contrary, I think from an Italian perspective, it's very interesting what's going on with Brexit because there are, I guess, two things at play. One is, oh, we are not the only dysfunctional political system. So there's a sense of relief at saying, well, uh, we are not the worst, really. That's, <laughs> a, ser- that's a service that we now provide to countries well, yeah, around exactly. the world. <laughs> Especially because the UK used to be seen as the perfect political system, obviously, at least in Italy. Could be the influence of Montesquieu, I've, I've no idea. But um, it used to be seen as a very functioning political system. And look, now they're worse than we are. So that's one line. But then the other interesting observation that one can draw from uh, looking at Brexit is that actually it is very difficult and it is very complicated to withdraw from the European Union. And part of this is also due to how the European Union is structured and what the constraints that the European Union imposes on national politics are. And obviously for a country that is struggling with those constraints and that is struggling with the outlook of the European Union, this is interesting. And it's difficult to do it um, even without the complication of being a member of the Eurozone. Exactly, exactly. So I think, and this plays out also in the Eurosceptic movement in Italy. So both the Five Star and the League used to be Eurosceptic. They were advocating exiting the Eurozone rather than Europe. But this is a position that they have distanced themselves from quite explicitly in the past two or three years. And I think Brexit had a role to play in that. Uh, but then at the same time, again, one of Salvini's right-hand men said, if in May with the European elections we don't succeed at changing the European Union, we better leave it. So I think Italy is really looking with, a, with much interest at what's going on here. We'll tweet links to the uh, articles that we mentioned there at tppodcast underscore. We're putting out one more extra episode this week, a conversation that I recorded on a very different theme, much scarier than any of this. The Uninhabitable Earth, the best-selling book by David Wallace-Wells about where we may be heading with climate change. And then next week, I think probably we will have to get back to Brexit. Helen will be here. Chris will be here. It never ends. Do join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. We haven't so what we haven't got is that thing we normally have, which is we can all take a breather for five minutes while Helen explains what's what's really going on. So we have to be there will just be these pauses where <laughs> Imagine we're twenty percent cleverer here. <laughs> 
And as we touch on the fringes of the uh, wider economic implications of the <laughs> trade deals with China. China. <laughs> <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. <laughs> 